take your Bibles, please, and open it to 1 Peter, chapter 3. 1 Peter, chapter 3. Where do we find hope when we suffer? Where do we find hope when we suffer? Last week, we emphasized the fact that suffering is a reality of life. Right? Part of the human experience. If you are alive, you're a human being, you live in this world, you will suffer. There's no two ways about it. But that doesn't mean that we fold. Doesn't mean that we fade away. Peter instructs Christians in chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, about how we should respond to suffering. We looked at these last week. Let me just remind you of them briefly. We continue to live righteously and do good. We fear God, not our enemies. We honor Christ and set Him apart in our hearts as holy. We reasonably and respectfully defend the gospel. These are all things that we should be doing whenever we encounter suffering of any kind. We know that we can't make suffering go away. We must persevere through it. But our response is not mechanical, right? We don't set our lives on autopilot. We don't simply just say, okay, program these things in like a computer and they're going to be you know, outputted, right? So what drives us to do these things? What drives us to persevere in the midst of suffering? What drives us to respond properly to suffering? Well, it is hope. There must be some hope that is driving us to endurance, some hope that is driving us to perseverance. I couldn't help but think about the Florida State football team this week. I mean, mere moments after service ended last week. My goodness. How many times has that team faced adversity and challenges throughout the year? Right? In this season. You know, losing a quarterback. Down in football games. You know, even the previous several years before that. The losing seasons and the coaches leaving and the new coaches coming and the hope disappointed and all different kinds of controversies and things. And yet, one of the things that made them such a lovable team this year is that they put their head down, they fought, they battled, they worked hard to meet the challenge. Why did they do that? Why get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to go lift weights in January? Why endure the February mat drills? Why go through the challenge the spring practice? Why go through the long off-season of player-led workouts? Why endure the brutal heat of August for fall camp? Why week in and week out go through the, the practices and the preparation to be able to do these things? What was the hope of playing for a national championship, right? They were going to run it back for 2023. This is going to be their year. They were going to leave it all on the field. There was something bigger. There was something more glorious. There was something with a future benefit that compelled them to take care of their bodies and practice hard and do their schoolwork and rise up in games when their back was against the wall. And what has absolutely shattered that team? The hope of playing for a national championship is gone. And if you've been on social media this week, if you've seen the various news reports, you've seen some of the challenges that they've had to endure, the dejection, the confusion, the anger, right? How are they going to endure this disappointment? The hope of what they were looking forward to 
has been taken away. Well, friends, we face a far greater adversity than a football game or a national championship. But there is also a hope and a reality that compels us even more to persevere and endure tremendous hardship. And that hope, that reality, is the victory of Christ and our participation in that victory. And that's where Peter turns now in his letter. What hope compels these persecuted believers to respond to suffering faithfully? And what hope compels them, what hope compels us to respond faithfully when we too find adversity and face adversity in our lives? It is the victory of Christ. And that's what we're going to see this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. So follow along in your Bibles as I read that passage for us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, if you've, that's the first time you've read that, you might say that's a pretty challenging passage. If you've been reading it all week, I'm sure it's probably been on your minds as a very challenging passage, and certainly it is. It's the most difficult in First Peter and probably one of the more difficult in the New Testament. So whenever I come to a passage I have difficulty understanding, exegeting, interpreting, and applying, my strategy is to focus on what is clear and then let, what it, let that help us understand more what is unclear. And so what I want to do this morning with this passage is break it up into two parts, two points. Okay, I want us to think first about Christ's suffering and victory, which is essential to understanding this passage. And then I want to think, secondly, about our participation in Christ's suffering and victory. So first, Christ's suffering and our victory, then our participation in it. So Christ's suffering and our victory. I want to first point out the parallel between our suffering and Christ's suffering. Notice in verse 18 that Peter begins with the word for, right? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, for in this case is not a preposition. It is a conjunction. So it's much like the word therefore or because. So it's linking verse 18 to verse 17. And what did Peter say in verse 17? He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So he's talking here about the reader's suffering. Right? They are suffering. They're suffering for doing good. They're suffering for living righteously. They're suffering for walking in obedience for God's word. They're not suffering for doing evil. Right? It's not like they are getting what they deserve. They're walking rightly. They're doing the right thing. They're obeying God, and yet they are suffering. And this su- they're suffering for doing good Peter says in verse 17, is God's will for them. In other words, God has ordained their suffering to work out his mysterious, sovereign, redemptive plan in them and in the world. 
Peter connects now his reader's suffering to Christ's suffering in verse 17, or verse 18. So let me read verse 17 again. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, right? So he is connecting his reader's sufferings to Christ's suffering. Peter is saying here that Christ suffered just like you. Your suffering is parallel to his suffering. Don't think that something unique has happened to you. Don't think that God has abandoned you or forgotten you. Don't think that God is angry with you or rejected you. Your suffering is patterned after Christ's suffering. Because he suffered, you're suffering. You're suffering for his sake. You're suffering because he suffered. You're suffering as an imitation of his life. You are walking in his steps by your suffering. So Peter's words are meant to inform his readers of the meaning of their suffering and to encourage them through their suffering. As they suffer, they are imitating the pattern of their Savior, right? What does it mean ultimately to be a Christian? What is God's purpose for us to conform us to the image of Christ? Our lives should look like Christ. So it shouldn't surprise us that we suffer because he suffered. Peter also wants to reinforce to his readers that their suffering is God's sovereign will for them because his suffering, because Christ's suffering was God's sovereign will for Christ. Why did Christ endure the cross? Why did Christ suffer the cross? Why did Christ suffer rejection? It was his, it was his will, his redemptive will for us. So I want to see that first, right? There is a parallel here. Our suffering parallels his suffering. But, At the same time, there is a little bit of a disconnect. Not a little bit, there's a lot of a disconnect. Because Christ's suffering served a unique purpose. So, Christ suffered, you suffer. But Christ's suffering served a unique purpose. So let's think about that for a moment. What was the purpose of Christ's suffering? What was the purpose of Christ's suffering? Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So let's just notice a few things just about verse 18. First, notice that Christ's suffering resulted in his death. He wasn't merely reviled. He wasn't merely mistreated. He endured the cross. He laid down his life in death. Second, notice also that Christ suffered death for us. Alright? Christ suffered death for us. He died, Peter says, for our sins. So this tells us that Jesus did not suffer for doing evil. Okay, back in verse 17, Peter made that clear. Your suffering, people, your suffering is not because you've done evil. You're doing good. It's God's will that you suffer for doing good. So why did Jesus suffer? Well, it wasn't for doing evil. He, too, was doing God's will. He, too, was living righteously. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve death in any way. On the contrary, right, he, he lived a perfect life. He lived the righteous life, the supremely righteous life, the fully righteous life that God requires all of us to live that we fail to live. Jesus died for doing good and his death was God's will. So the reason that Christ died, we see in verse 18, then was for our sins. We were sinners. We were the evildoers. We were the rebels. We were the blasphemers. We deserved death. 
We deserve death not only in this life, but we, is, we deserve death eternally. We deserve to bear the righteous wrath of God for our sins forever. But notice what Peter says in verse 18, that Jesus, the righteous one who had never done wrong, died for us, the unrighteous ones who were deserving of death for our sins. On the cross, Jesus bore our sins and endured God's righteous wrath that those sins deserve. He paid the penalty that we were due for our sins. And the third thing to notice about verse 18 here is what was the outcome of Christ's sufferings? What happened as a result of his death? In verse 18 it says that he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. By his suffering, by his death, Jesus brought us to God. It's because our sins had ruptured our relationship with God. God created humanity, intended to have a, a, a relationship with him. And yet we broke that relationship by our sinfulness. By our sin, we, we were alienated from God. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were children of wrath and sons of disobedience. But in his death, Christ brought us to God. He ended the hostility between us and God. And he made peace. He reconciled us to God. And so by virtue of his suffering, Jesus brought us into an abiding eternal fellowship with God. So Christ's suffering had a redemptive purpose. It was God's will. It was God's definite, eternal plan to send Christ into the world and die for our sins so that we would be forgiven and so that we could enter into a covenant relationship with God. Our suffering, though it is like Christ in some ways, is not like his in this way. We do not suffer for the sins of others. We do not suffer in order to bring other people to God. But when we suffer, we are reminded that we are imitating Christ's pattern of life. Pattern of life of one who suffered for us. And so what gives us hope in our suffering is remembering that for Jesus, his suffering and death was not the end. Jesus died, but as Peter notes here in verse 18... Death, his suffering and his death were not the end, and it's remembering that reality that gives us hope. So what was the result of Christ's suffering? What was the result of Christ's suffering? It was victory. And how did Christ attain victory? Peter says it is through his resurrection from the dead. In the latter part of verse 18, he says, no, let's read the whole verse, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit or by the Spirit. Peter here affirms a central point, the central point of the Gospel, that Christ was raised bodily from the dead. And let me emphasize the word there, bodily. This was not a mere spiritual resurrection. This isn't simply the memory of Jesus that has endured for 2,000 years. Jesus was raised bodily. And for that reason, then, Jesus' death was not the end, right? We tend to think of death as final. And in a sense, there is a finality to it. Death means to cut off from life. Physical death is the permanent cutting us off from physical life. Spiritual death, eternal death, is the permanent cutting off of life from God. So if Jesus had remained dead, then his followers certainly would have had no hope, right? 
if Jesus had died, that would have been the end of it permanently, then we would have no hope. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 and 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if Christ had not been raised from the dead, if he is still in a grave somewhere, we are simply going through the motions. We are a people who are just practicing vanity and our hope is in vain. But because Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, it means that he conquered death. And if he conquered death, then he stands as what theologians call Christus Victor. Christ the Victor. Christ who has victory over all creation. And so it is his victory over death that gives us hope. The hope that if we too die suffering for his name, that we too will be raised bodily from the dead just as he was raised bodily from the dead. It is the victory of Christ through his resurrection after his suffering that gives us hope that we too will have victory through his resurrection after our own suffering in this life. Peter confirms and celebrates the victory of Christ over death and the triumph of God's gracious redemptive purposes in three ways. First, we see that Christ proclaimed his victory over his defeated enemies. Look at verse 19. Continuing on the thought of verse 18, he says, in which, the fact, the reality, that Christ was raised from the dead, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this is probably... passage is full of challenging parts. This is probably the most challenging of them. Martin Luther said about this verse, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. And to that I will give a hearty amen. Let me do the best I can. Before we can interpret this verse properly, we need to define three key terms. The word went, the word proclaimed, and the phrase, the spirits in prison. Those are the three critical points of this passage, or points of this verse that we need to kind of work through. I'm going to go through them in reverse order, okay? Just a little easier to go that way. So we'll start off with the spirits in prison. Who are the spirits in prison? Well, Peter helpfully identifies us for them, or identifies them for us in verse 20. When he says, because they, referring to those spirits in prison, did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. He's referring to an incident in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that precipitated the flood. It was happened before the flood and actually led to the flood. Now, the problem with that passage is that it's just as unclear as this one is. So we're glad that Peter gave us something to connect it to, but he gave to us a passage that's just as fraught with interpretive difficulties as this one here. So, again, I, we could spend all afternoon working through the various interpretations of all these things. I'm going to get down to the brass tacks where I think this lands. The best interpretation of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, is that fallen angels came to earth and had sexual relations with earthly women corrupting the human race both biologically and spiritually. So Peter says, as he says in verse 20, God sent the flood to wipe out the sinfulness that corrupted the earth 
And he also imprisoned these fallen angels, whom Peter calls here the spirits. In fact, Peter writes about these fallen angels or spirits again in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So it seems that these spirits are fallen angels who sinned against God and brought great corruption upon the earth. God imprisoned them in hell, or the Greek word is Hades. I like that word a little better. It's a more literal translation. We think of hell as the place of eternal judgment, whereas this is more of a sort of a holding place until the time of final judgment. Hades is the place where the spirits of unregenerate people remain until the day of judgment. So these fallen angels are condemned, just as unregenerate sinners are condemned, and they are awaiting judgment because of their own sinfulness. Okay? Those are the spirits in prison. Back before the flood, these angels came down, corrupted the earth. God brought the flood to deal with those upon the earth. These fallen angels or spirits were imprisoned in Hades and chained there. They're not permitted any kind of freedom or movement or whatnot to await the final judgment. And they'll be judged because of their fallenness, because of their sinfulness. Okay. The word proclaimed, which I like. The word proclaimed here in the ESV translation. Some of the translations will say preached. The word, the Greek word is usually translated as preached in the New Testament. And it often, most often appears in the context of preaching the gospel. This is the word that would be used if you're talking about preaching the gospel. So that's how it's mostly used. However, its most basic meaning just simply means to announce. It's derived from the Greek word, which is the word herald or messenger, someone who is sent out, a messenger who is sent out from a ruler to communicate an urgent message to people who are in vast different parts of the domain. So, I think that's the idea that we should retain here. Christ, I don't think, is preaching the gospel, but he is announcing or heralding some kind of news to the imprisoned fallen angels. And that brings us to the word, which is probably the most problematic word. Go figure, right? I mean, it's the word went, go. It's the past tense of go. And it indicates that Jesus went somewhere. The question is, where did he go? The plain reading of the passage seems to indicate that Jesus went to hell or went to Hades and proclaimed some message to those imprisoned fallen angels. But that interpretation is problematic for a couple of reasons. First, wherever Jesus goes, he goes after his resurrection. Okay? And that's clear from the opening phrase of verse 19, in which. Okay? In which, there's a little bit of a translation difficulty there as well, but it's clear that whatever it means, it's connected back to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is now, it says, whatever he is proclaiming to these fallen angels, he is doing so after his resurrection and not in that interval between his death and resurrection. Okay, So the proclamation that he makes, wherever he goes, the proclamation he makes occurs after the resurrection. So it seems odd that Jesus would go to Hades in his glorified state after the resurrection. The second question here, issue, is that 
why would Jesus go to Hades to preach to the imprisoned fallen angels? What purpose would that serve? It seems highly unlikely that he would go to preach the gospel to them to give them a chance at repentance. Peter already said that angels long to look into the mystery of redemption, back in chapter 1, verse 12, implying that angels are not participants in Christ's redemptive work. So it seems odd that he would go to them to preach this news to them. Third, the word went in Greek appears also in verse 22 where the meaning is clear. Look at verse 22. We're going to skip down there. Referring to Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You see the phrase, has gone. Okay? That's the perfect tense of the word go. Okay? So went, has gone, the same word in Greek, just a different tense. And here, we ask ourselves the question, where did Jesus go? Right? It's a lot clearer. Because it says that he went to heaven to take his place at God's right hand. And of course, Peter in verse 22 is alluding to the ascension, which we'll talk more about in a moment. The broader context here would indicate that went has the same meaning as has gone in verses 19 and 22. Jesus didn't go to two separate places. He went to one place. And that place was heaven. And from his seat at the right hand of the Father, Jesus announced his victory, not just over these fallen angels, but over every enemy, over every spiritual power that has opposed him and his redemptive work. So, in the weeds a little bit, let's pull back, see more of the big picture, to connect us to the main point. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves the victory of Christ because he has not only defeated death, but he has also defeated every spiritual power that opposed God and Christ and that opposed their saving, that their redemptive work to save a sinful and rebellious humanity. Jesus is proclaiming his victory in heaven with the Father in his glorified state. So that's the first way in which we see here the victory of Christ being confirmed and celebrated by Peter. The second way that Peter confirms and celebrates the victory of Christ is by highlighting his ascension into heaven. Now, I just read it, but I want to read it again. Verse 22. Notice at the very end of verse 21, we see the phrase, Jesus Christ, right? Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is where Jesus went after the resurrection. He returned to the Father, the King of creation, the Sovereign of the universe. And there, at the Father's, with the Father, He sat down at His right hand, the place of status, the place of position, the place of authority, to receive from the Father the promise for His redemptive work. And the promise was all authority in heaven and on earth. We know that He was given that. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He also received the promise of an eternal dominion over every people, language, tribe, and tongue that will serve him forever. And he will also receive his eternal glory. And from that seat at the Father's right hand, he rules and reigns until the time when he returns again for his people. And from that seat, he also declares his victory over all. Peter does not quote this 
but he seems to be alluding here to Psalm 110. Let me read parts of that psalm, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So the New Testament repeatedly quotes this psalm to prove that Christ is the Messiah, that Christ is the victor, that he is proclaiming his victory by virtue of his resurrection. And that's what Peter seems to be doing here. He is marking in this psalm once again to prove the same point that the other gospel writers prove. The third way that Peter confirms and celebrates the victory of Christ is to declare his, subject, his subjection of all evil powers. Again, verse 22, Jesus Christ has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And the word angels, authorities, and powers all point to hostile angelic powers. In a way, it broadens the scope of Christ's victory to the, prison, the spirits who are in prison that were mentioned back in verse 19. Peter's point here in verse 22, as it was in verses 19 and 20, is that by Christ's victorious resurrection, he is victorious overall. He's victorious even over the evil spiritual powers that oppose him. He's victorious over the evil spiritual powers that are menacing Christians who follow Christ. Those people, those dear readers that Peter is writing to, who are suffering greatly for the sake of Christ, for doing Christ's will, are being menaced by these evil spiritual powers. And what Peter is saying is, Christ's victory is over them as well. You may be suffering right now because of their evil work. But know for certain that Christ is victorious over them. He is proclaiming his victory. These evil spiritual powers that are leading and causing your suffering, they're defeated. There is, they're defeated enemies. So by his resurrection, we see that Jesus broke the power of death and he subjected all evil enemies under his authority. Jesus reigns and all evil powers are doomed. There is no hope for them at all. All that remains is the fury of God's righteous judgment for them. So let's, meet, let's bring this back all then to the main point we began with. Christ's suffering and victory. Jesus suffered in his death on the cross. But he was raised from the dead. He is Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. He sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all that the Father has given him with the fullness of God's authority. He has subjected all of his enemies and rendered them impotent and defeated. From his position of authority, he declares to all, especially to his authorities, to, to his enemies, his triumphant, total, and eternal victory. Now, the implications then for Peter's readers and for us is threefold. First, Jesus left us a pattern for how to suffer. We endure because at the end of our endurance is victory just as it was for Jesus. Second implication, because Jesus is victorious, we will be victorious. Our victory is tied to his victory. Our victory is sure because his victory is sure. The third implication is that Christ's victory gives us hope. It gives us hope to endure through suffering. It gives us hope that we will one day participate fully in his victory. 
And that's where I want to go next with the last part of this message, the last point, second point. Our participation in Christ's suffering and victory. Peter notes that the reason why Christ's victory is the promise of our victory is through our faith in the gospel. How is it that we have victory? How do we participate in Christ's victory? Well, it's through our faith in the gospel. And Peter links very intimately our faith in Christ with baptism. Look at verse 21. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now for Protestants, that's a troubling way of phrasing Peter's point, right? Baptism now saves you. We believe sola fide, that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. So what does Peter mean here? He does not mean that baptism saves in a mechanical sense. Okay? In other words, we are not saved merely by being baptized. This is more of a ritual or sacramental understanding of baptism that is held primarily by the Roman Catholic Church, right? That merely by being baptized, you are saved. How do we know that Peter that means that this is not what baptism is, that this is not baptism doesn't save in this way? Well, because of what he says next, when he says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, he interprets that for us, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, merely undergoing the act of baptism and getting wet is is akin to like taking a bath, right? It doesn't, but it doesn't save. Merely undergoing the act of baptism and getting wet, like taking a bath, doesn't save. It just merely gets you wet. Well, if baptism is not simply undergoing the act, what is it? What does Peter mean by baptism here? Peter says that baptism, in verse 21, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, at baptism, believers are appealing to God or asking God on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ to cleanse their consciences and forgive their sins. That's very similar to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So baptism is a demonstration of faith in Christ and what he has done for us. And what did he do for us? Verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, Christ suffered for our sins to bring us to God. And how did he do it? He was put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit. Baptism, then, is not a salvific ritual, but a display of faith in Christ and his saving work on the cross and in his resurrection. By baptism, we proclaim our faith in Christ by visually representing his death and resurrection in symbolic form. When we are submerged in the water, right, what are we doing? We are pointing to Christ's suffering death for our sins. When we are raised from the water, what are we doing? We are pointing to Christ's triumphant resurrection by which he proclaims his victory over all things. 
So when we are baptized, we are saying that this death, right, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is what saves me. His death and resurrection forgive me of my sins and bring me to God. His death and resurrection give me a living hope that empowers my enduring faithfulness and will one day lead me to my eternal glory in Christ. So by baptism, we identify ourselves with Christ, we display publicly our faith in Christ, and we declare that our hope is rooted in Christ's victory. Understand what Peter, that this is what Peter means. We look back to the example he gives back in verse 20. As he is unfolding the significance of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, for the victory of Christ, he also notes that while the Spirit's in Suffer because of our identity in Christ. We suffer because of our 